DiscerningHearts.com presents a very special In Conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp discussing the life and legacy of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, also known as Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. Dr. Chapp is a retired professor of theology. He taught for 20 years at DeSales University near Allentown, Pennsylvania. In 2013, he and his wife opened the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm in Harvey Lakes, Pennsylvania. He's the founder and chief content creator of the website and podcast entitled Gaudium et Spes 22. We now begin our conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Chapp, thank you for joining me once again. Well, Chris, it is always a joy to join you. It's uh, been too long since I, I've been on uh, on your show, but it's it's fun. Thank you for inviting me on, on this, actually, this sad day. Sad? Gosh, yeah, it is. But then on the other hand, this man, Pope Benedict Sixteenth, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, he was waiting for this day. He lived his life for this time, didn't he? Yes, he lived uh, with his gaze intent on the Lord. and. Uh, directly on Christ his entire life. Uh, I'm, I say a sad day simply because I was hoping that he was immortal. I was hoping <laughs> that he he would live, you know, to be 400 or something uh, in good health, but still to be 400. I don't wish uh, misery upon him, that's for sure. And so now he is with the Lord. I'm sure I'm personally convinced that he is a saint, that he is he is in heaven. And so I'm already praying to him. Yeah, I I am with you 100%. Um, as far as that mortality range, I'm hoping that will be your age eventually, <laughs> the 400s. I could see that. Just stick around, you know, just to watch things and keep people. Yeah, but in track. my case, I would hang around out of spite, not out of <laughs> well, holiness. I don't know about that. But uh, the, the thing is about Pope Benedict, it's hard for me to say emeritus, it, only only to the extent that I just love calling him Papa, the Holy Father of yeah. Benedict, because so many people have benefited from his, yes. um, can we say paternal teachings? I mean, he really was that Petrine. Uh, he was he was a real papa. He was a real holy father. And uh, I think that a lot of people looked up to him for exactly those reasons. It's not just his tremendous erudition, his massive intellect, uh, his profound theology and all the listeners out there. If you're not familiar with Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict's theology, uh, run, don't walk to your next Amazon.com, you know, order and, and, and get some of his books. I would recommend, you know, the, the multi-volume set on Jesus of Nazareth, the life of Christ that he wrote actually while Pope. But more beyond all of his writings, there was, I think you're right, Chris, that paternalistic, not in a bad or condescending, so that paternalistic uh, aspect of him, he just exuded a sort of fatherly love. Now, you just interviewed Father Vincent Tuomi. I interviewed Father Vincent Tuomi, a man who studied under Ratzinger, did his doctorate under Ratzinger. And the one thing that stood out for me more than the sort of theological conversation we had was Father Tuomi's discussions of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, the man. And the thing that just kept leaping out was he listens and he's humble mm -hmm. and uh, the sign of a great shepherd, a great father. Yeah, and you know, for many in the, they'll be encountering the secular stories right off the top. Oh, yeah. And in the headlines, yeah. you'll see the the Pope that resigned. But you know what, Larry, it at the moment that it happened, 
There was so much going on the dynamics of the church. This was right after the Council on the New Evangelization in 2012 that occurred. Of course, his resignation was in 2013. But I, I saw it as one of the greatest acts of discernment of actually that deep, deep listening um, yes. that by what, and he's obedient to that. And, you know, we will, generations will go back and they'll analyze it, I'm sure. But I trust that prayer. That is a man who did theology and discerning on his knees. And the fact that if he felt that call, then I trust that he, he did I, I, what he needed to do. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would add to that too that the beauty of that discernment is that his decision to resign, and I agree with you, was the product of deep prayer, deep discernment. It wasn't just him saying, "Uh, I'm tired of this. Uh, Somebody else needs to do this gig. I've done my bit for king and country, dead gummit. Now I'm going to retire someplace and read my books. That wasn't it at all. You're absolutely right. It was was from a deep, deep awareness that this is what the Lord was calling him to do. But that discernment to resign came on the heels of the previous pope's discernment to stay until the bitter end, to, Mm -hmm. in a sense, be a witness to the suffering of Parkinson's disease and the ravages of old age, and the witness of of someone who is suffering through the last, uh, you know, the last ravages of disease and mortality. Uh, and, and you can say, well, look at the contrast there. One pope stuck it out to the end despite grave illness, and one decided to put his tail between his legs and run. Not at all. They they were cut out of the same cloth. One could argue, for example, if you were just going on worldly metrics, mm-hmm. that the church kind of drifted a bit in the last five to eight years of John Paul's papacy. One could say pragmatically, if that's all we're talking about here, that maybe John Paul should have resigned and let, you know, somebody else take over when he was so debilitated. But he discerned, no, I still have a task from the Lord. And Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, discerned as well that in this case, the Lord was asking him to leave. In both cases, I think we're dealing with men who are saints. Oh, I agree. Oh, and possibly, probably, can we say doctors of the church, I mean, oh, yes, John Paul in his way, but Benedict, my gosh, I, if it was just from the audiences, the teachings that he gave us, the, yeah. the church at that time, I mean, people will be getting their doctorates just from the study of his writings. Don't you think? I think it, I, I think it would be a grand gesture on the part of the current Holy Father, Pope Francis, to uh, immediately declare <laughs> Pope Benedict. Uh, a doctor of the church. I think that would be a fantastic gesture on his part. I think also that it would be uh, a real blessing if that did happen, whether in this pontificate or in a future one, because there are those on the very, very conservative spectrum, theologically speaking, who think that Joseph Ratzinger is a dangerous liberal modernist theologian, um, who, you know, didn't, I mean, because let's, I mean, Joseph Ratzinger, the theologian, was not a straight-line Thomistic scholar. He did his studies on St. Bonaventure, and he was very interested in Bonaventure's theology of history. 
Uh, he didn't think that Aquinas, and I think he's right about this, Aquinas does not give us a theology of history. I mean, Aquinas is a genius. I love Aquinas. Uh, but do we all have to be Thomists? No. And and actually, Ratzinger was not a Thomist. He loved St. Thomas, but he was not a Thomist. He was more Augustinian, more in the line of Bonaventure. And so it would be nice to have him declared a doctor of the church, if for no other reason, to highlight the great pluralism of schools of theology that exist in the church, and that Ratzinger was not a dangerous modernist just because he opted for a more historical understanding uh, of, of dogmatic constructions. And what I love about him so much too, Larry, is he broke open the doors to prayer. He, yes. I mean, it just exploded with grace and the, the, the different ways in which he said this, the, you know, just... Um, the beauty in the encounter with Christ uh, in, in so many different ways. I mean, speak to that. I mean, that in itself is a tremendous legacy. Well, I think in this sense, uh, let's talk a little bit then about uh, the theological school, if you will, of which he was not only a part, but kind of almost, you know, uh, a founding member, and that would be the Communio School of Theology, otherwise called Ressourcement Theology, the return to the sources. And of course, that those terms can mean different things to different people because it's it's a designator that kind of is a description of a kind of a loose aggregate of similar theologians, but who events fairly different styles and, and content here and there. But the one thing that does bind them all together whether it's Ratzinger, Balthazar, De Lubac, Daniel Lu, Guardini, Bouillet, all those giants, is that they all believed that there needed to be a coming together of theology and sanctity, theology on your knees, theology and prayer, theology and spirituality. Uh, those two things had become divorced uh, in the more so-called scientific theology of the neo-scholastics that was very deductive, I uh, had no time for mystery. In fact, that's one of the reasons why uh, Balthazar de Lubac, Daniel Lu, Guardini, Ratzinger, these guys are accused by uh, very conservative types of being modernists, precisely because they they wanted to get away from that strict deductive scientific theology uh, and more in the direction of theology is grounded in mystery, in sacrament, in mysticism, in prayer, spirituality. Uh, in that sense, you know, Ratzinger and Balthazar were joined at the hip. Um, and I don't know how much we want to talk about Balthazar. I know he's controversial and all that these days. Um, but I definitely think that we can at least all agree, no matter what criticisms we might have of some of these thinkers on this or that point, we can all agree that we need a theology that once again brings together prayer and and uh, and, and theology. And that means and to go back to where we started, it means a theology that has a Christocentric focus, a theology that keeps its gaze squarely on Christ. And that then means also the communion of saints, the Virgin Mary, the sacraments, the church, everything that flows from that gaze on Christ, because there is no other Christ than the Christ of the communion of saints, the Christ of the church, um, and so on. I agree. I mean, just for the, the average person like me, Okay, just someone who is maybe steeped in the type of um, the used to reading the the deeper theological uh, depths that Benedict or Joseph Ratzinger was able to to take so many into. 
those Wednesday audiences, for example, you can you oh, yeah. can get them. You know, you can either get them online at Vatican.va or you can purchase them. I know Ignatius Press has put them all together. But those teachings, especially about the lives of the saints, as he's went into not only the apostles and then he goes into the different doctors, the men and the women. And he talks about how don't be afraid. As long as you're anchored in a in a beautiful obedience and a humility, yes. you yes. know, don't be afraid theology to look at, for example, uh, a Hildegard or a Bridget of Sweden or uh, any one of those those maternal figures who may express it in a more colloquial way, but in a way that is accessible to the people. Yeah, Elizabeth of the Trinity, Saint Therese of Lisieux. Uh, and uh, and a few. I mean, I'm I'm glad you're highlighting some of the the female mystics, the Teresa of Avila, uh, because I think they're a much neglected resource in the church. And and both Balthazar and Ratzinger pointed our direction at, at precisely. Well, those he pulled thinkers. he pulled Hildegard mm-hmm. out of the closet, and you know he where did. she where people were kind of like, wait, I don't know what to do with her, you know. And he said, no, come and look at the Sybil of the Rhine. Look at this woman, this dynamic spiritual mama and her, and he can't, he first, he made her a saint, canonized her and officially, and then made her a doctor. Oh he, yeah. So and there's a great is, movie of her on her life out now. I haven't, I haven't, mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't say it's a great movie because I haven't seen it, but I've heard people rave about it. My friend, father, John Gribowicz sent it to me. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's out there. <laughs> I don't know yeah. the name of it and I never watched it, but I know people that have watched it said it's great, but it's about Hildegard. And uh, I'm a big fan of the Hildegard and I'm glad she's a doctor of the church now. And you're right. I mean, Ratzinger, Benedict pulled her out of obscurity or I mean, a lot of people knew who she was, but they would think, well, she's like out there on the fringes. New agey. Uh, She's oh, new age. He's a dangerous pantheist because she likes to, you know, but uh, I, I, I agree. And, and this, I think, is one of one of the things that you notice, I think, both about John Paul and Benedict. Even I think Benedict is a clearer writer than John Paul. Uh, nevertheless, there's a poetic element at the very soul, a lyrical element at the very soul of both of their theological and philosophical projects and that lyricism and that poetry is also a characteristic i think of of, of communio theology um and and i i'm i'm just like i mean look how much benedict loved mozart loved music uh, he had a mu- he had a musician's soul he had a poet's eye and yet he had a scholar's precision I mean, how how many people combine all of those qualities? Seriously, left brain and right brain combined with great, powerful humility and faith and devotion. <laughs> it's like, wow, uh, the likes of a Benedict shall not come our way again anytime soon, I fear. No, That's I mean, the thing, you know, we lost David L. Schindler this month. Hmm. We lost Benedict. And, and so I just keep thinking, maybe I'm just showing my age. Where are the giants? Who will replace these giants? Where are they? Are they out there? I just don't pay attention to them. I am not seeing them. I don't know. Well, uh, now I, it's I, now it's a time for those his, their spiritual children to um, give them voice. Now yes. it's the time for it, for all of that. And you can the, they set they spread the seed. 
and now it's time to let it grow. And, you know, as you were talking, I know this is very girly way of saying it, but I mean, what he did was the dance of love. He took all those different elements and just it, the ultimate is that expression of love. And, um, in he, as you said, it was not only the music. I, I remember I was very challenged the fact that he loved Mark Chagall, the artist. And I would look yeah. at him and go, really? Mark Chagall? And then he as he saw the beauty in it. It's like a David, David Schindler loved Bob Marley. <laughs> so because he saw the beauty in Bob Marley. Exactly. Exactly. There's something because they saw God in all things. And when you talk about scripture i mean is there anybody that was able to give more to that understanding of how we look at scripture than uh joseph ratzinger i mean a spirit of the liturgy oh. my goodness it, that is it's a it's a scripture book but it's a liturgy book it's a, yeah. i mean he he saw the sacred word in every element of our lives so yes and i don't know why but when you were just talking about his book on the liturgy right now, something popped into my head, which is that I think now those of us who so admire Benedict and, and understand him as, in a sympathetic way, a deeply sympathetic way, I think we do, we need to not shy away from defending him uh, uh, because there are a lot of caricatures of him, the Panzer Cardinal, the right wing uh, authoritarian cardinal and pope the suppressor of free thought the hater of modernity and so on and yet as as you just pointed out i mean he was a lover of all things beautiful and as father twomey points out he listened and he was a great conversationalist and he was very willing to dialogue with all kinds of uh, different different voices he he was not the panzer cardinal and and this this has to be said over and I mean, I, in the secular press, too, you still find an occasional accusation that, well, wasn't he a Nazi once? Uh, his family was very anti-Nazi to set the record straight. And he was conscripted into the Hitler youth as all as all German boys were. Fortunately, he didn't have to attend the meetings because he had a sympathetic local Hitler youth leader who said, yeah, you don't have John, Joseph, you don't have to come to these things. He manned an anti-aircraft artillery battery in Berlin or someplace in Munich. I don't know where it was for like a few days. The war was over. He just walked away. He's not, he wasn't a Nazi. He wasn't the Panzer Cardinal. He wasn't a liberal before the council and then became a reactionary conservative after the council. If you look at his stuff, I mean, you go back to 1958, for example, one a freshly minted doctoral uh, freshly minted doctorate, uh, Father Joseph Ratzinger in 1958 pens a bombshell of an article published in a German thing called Hochschild. And in that, it, the article was called the, the New Heathenism in the Church, or the, sometimes translated the New Paganism in the Church. And you go and you read that article, you see this in Seewald's biography of him. And he's all he's already laying out themes about the bourgeois mediocrity of the church, the rot of the church from within. The church lacks faith. There's a de facto atheism at the heart of those who read my blog. Where do you think I got all of those terms? De facto atheism, the nullification of God, all the bourgeois mediocrity. I got them from Joseph Ratzinger, who wrote that stuff already in 1958. Oh, yeah. Some big liberal. Right. Uh, in 58, decrying the fact that the church had accommodated itself essentially to modern bourgeois culture. 
All right. Then the council hits and you get the progressive co-optation of the council afterwards. And now all of a sudden, Ratzinger seems really right way. OK, but he actually hasn't changed at all. His theology may like all theologians, the theology gets modified. It gets nuanced. It deepens itself. And as, as you age and you and you read more widely. Uh, but he was very consistent with his fundamental theological principles throughout his career. And he was not an arrogant oppressor of, of free thought. He was doing his job as the head of the CDF uh, to, in a sense, police the theological ranks. And he didn't, you know, he wasn't particularly draconian and all of that. Anyway, I'm, I'm ranting on and on here now, but you get the point. I don't, I love it when you rant. So I don't want <laughs> I'm a good stop. ranter. Yeah, yeah you're, but, you're but somebody's. But somebody's, yeah, I sure am. But <laughs> in terms of ranting, but somebody has to say these things in defense. Mm-hmm. Now, let's not let's not be shy about this. Let's not be coy about this. Uh, Pope Benedict had strong critics from both the left wing and the right wing within the church. Uh, and, and I think those critics have to be answered, not dismissed. I think they have to be answered because nobody's perfect. And I'm sure Pope Benedict had his flaws. He probably mm-hmm. had even his personality flaws and so on from People who knew him best could probably say, but his overall legacy has to be defended against uh, these deeply unfair criticisms from the right, that he was a crypto modernist uh, who wasn't Thomistic enough from the left, that he was, you know, an oppressive, you know, violator of conscience rights and academic freedom. Um, I, I, I think that he was none of those things. Um, so no, anyway, well, and the thing is the average person hopefully um will experience him through just you know i again I, I go back to the audiences i go back to his writings i know when there was a time in the 90s when i had been involved in working in ministry in parishes just local parishes and i was dismayed at what was happening there was so much um until the uh, it was just before the scandals started coming out and being revealed and the what was happening in the church at that time it i i mean i started drifting away i was losing my faith i mean that was it yeah. i mean it's like how yeah. can i how can this be real if this is what's happening and i'm seeing it with my own eyes and the, and and eventually it would get cleared up um or at least be revealed in in many many different ways which which breaks our heart but what happened is I picked up a copy of Spirit of the Liturgy that happened to be on a bargain table at a at a Borders bookstore. And um, I opened yeah. it up and I thought, well, this is interesting. I got hooked and immediately and something happened. He took me into a different appreciation of what it was to have communion with Christ. Yeah. And, um, and to be able to experience the sacraments and to, to look at it. It was that charisma, that that encountering. You have to know Christ Jesus first, and he he had a way of articulating it, and still does because people can get to, to all of his writings, and then connecting it with the past, anchoring us in something much deeper than what might be happening in the moment. In a yeah. in a what we saw as an institution, and I say that in all reverence. I mean. Do you think yeah. I'm going far off a field on this? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, one of the things I was going to say with regard to those who unfairly caricature Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, is that <clears throat> my deep, deep suspicion, 
which I have come to after a great deal of evidence, so it's not so much a suspicion, is that most of his critics have never actually bothered to really read what he wrote. Uh, We live in the age of the Internet with talking points and memes and 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 silly superficialities going viral. Uh, Like I I know this, too, from so many people that criticize like De Lubach and stuff from from various traditionalist uh, perspectives. And it becomes very, very clear very quickly. Oh, you've never actually read De Lubach Uh, because I'm convinced. uh, Forget De Lubach, forget some of the others. I, I think more than any of the communio theologians. All you have to do is sit down and read Ratzinger and your life is going to be changed. Your heart is going to be changed and you're going to realize this was a profoundly saintly, holy man, because nobody could write these words and have these insights unless he was a man of deep and profound prayer and faith. I remember once I knew a, a, a Catholic worker. Uh, type who was very left wing and didn't like Ratzinger. Oh, Ratzinger's the Panzer Cardinal, you know, all the stereotypes mm-hmm, of the left. Mm-hmm. But then she eventually just, you know, read some Ratzinger. She had the, at least the honesty when I said, have you read him? No, I haven't. I'm just picking this up from others. She read Ratzinger and then she became a big Ratzinger fan. She goes, I don't know what these other people are talking about. I loved his stuff. Uh, and, and that's what we need. We need people to just read Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, read his encyclicals, even my goodness, Deus Caritas S, Space mm-hmm. Salvi. Oh, geez. Those Lu- two. If you just read those, those two. Those two. That's right. Yeah. On yeah. Hope, I mean, God, yeah. God is love. And I mean, that that one in itself, I mean, that's my 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 great uh prayer, my hope and my prayer on this day, the day of his death, January 31st, 2022, that he's now encountered that God fully in the fullest of communion. Um, Yeah. Because that's what I, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, that's those two encyclicals alone. If you want to start somewhere, start with that. And then if you can get past those, you know, you could spend a lifetime meditating on those. I just wrote uh, an essay for uh, our Sunday visitor on Pope Benedict mm-hmm. uh, that should be out very soon. But I, but I ended it in that way. I said, like, well, a man who devoted his entire life to the truth of Christ is now probably, I said, I, I have to imagine that he's smiling and going, ah, oh, yes, thank you. I now see the truth. I now see glory. I now see all these things that I have thought about and and dreamed about, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. You're now getting your reward. And uh, I mean, one of the things I highlight in that essay too, and it's related to Deus Caritas, Des and Space Salve, is that the, the overarching theological principle that really guided like an Ariadne's thread through entire, his entire career is his profound belief uh, that truth is is what we must give priority to and not just truth in the abstract that uh, truth is a person that truth becomes embodied in the in the concrete singularity that is jesus of nazareth the incarnate god and that the the only real metric for all truth is christ that's not to say everything gets reduced to theology that's not his point his -hmm. point is that's the that's the metric that's the barometer by which we need to gauge what the really real is uh, and, and so he became absolutely obsessed isn't the right word. It makes him sound maniacal. I mean, but he became so focused on this question of truth and that in the Christian 
ordo, truth means love. Truth means hope. Truth means faith. Uh, and because faith gives us knowledge, uh, it's a true gnosis, if you will, a true knowledge. And, and then it gives us truth. And that's why he went on and on and on about the dictatorship of relativism. I mean, when you think about that, for example, isn't that a contradiction that something could be relativistic and yet dictatorial? And yet what Ratzinger Benedict points out and points out so beautifully because of the way he parses theologically the concept of truth is that it makes perfect sense that relativism always issues forth in totalitarianism. It makes perfect sense. Well, uh, because we're experiencing when you, it today. Oh, we are I mean, experiencing we are. it today, you know, and uh, it's a shame very few people listen to what Papa Benedict had to say on these matters, uh, because when you replace ultimate, the ultimate truth of God with penultimate truths or even illusions, all that happens is you replace the one God with the lesser strong gods of blut und erde, blood and soil, the strong gods of desire, the libido dominandi, and those brook no interference. Uh, just look at woke culture. You know, and relativism is now issued forth in cancel culture. That's that's the point. That's that's what Benedict was saying his entire pontificate. Wake up. And unfortunately, we did not. I, I don't mean I, you, you had me. <laughs> I mean, who who's going to say these things? Who's saying them now? Well, you that's know? why, I mean, you that's... know, uh, I could get in a lot of trouble. I get you in a lot of trouble for but I'm not going to go, I'm not going to be critical of any particular people right now. I'd rather accentuate the positive on this day and to, and to accentuate hope. Uh, I don't see right now uh, a great deal of worldly hope, you know, on, the, on a purely psychological level. I don't survey the ecclesial landscape and see giants like Benedict or John Paul out there right now. I just don't. I just don't. I see a lot of young, great theologians out there. I interview them all the time on my uh, on my blog and my YouTube mm -hmm. channel. Um, but but none of them are, in a sense, also bishops and, and heads of the CDF or popes or, you know, and and yeah, so there's a lot of young blood out there. There's a lot of young, good theologians out there, both male and female, cut out of this same theological cloth. But there was something special about Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, that's why I said the likes of him we shall not see again, where you can buy great education, great erudition, great aesthetics, love for music, love for art, love for poetry, uh, theology. And it all, though, is rooted in his sanctity, rooted in his prayer, rooted in his gaze on Christ. I don't think I've ever encountered another thinker who, who, whose entire being was so synthetic. Not, and I don't mean artificial. I mean just woven together where all the various strands of all of these things are woven together into a beautiful tapestry because he was so tapped into the Lord. He was so tapped into Christ. Christ was the fulcrum around which everything else, you know, hinged on his life. And, and he was a man without guile. He, he did things with great purity, purity of thought, purity of intention, purity of, of uh, uh, prudential judgment. I don't know. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it's, I, I don't want to get all pessimistic, but my goodness, it's going to be a long time, I think, before we see the likes of Joseph Ratzinger and Pope Benedict again. Well, I think the um, one of the words that came up that, well, I, it did, we haven't said it, but it permeates the whole thing is humility. 
Yeah. I mean, this is what humility looks like in a very real way in, in, in his life. And we started out talking about how, when he had re resigned and how was deep listening, that obedience, it's that combination of the obedience yeah. and the humility to be able, uh, there's an unseen grace that flows from that type of action and you see, in the soul. Oh, gosh. And oh, this is I'm so glad we circled back to this because this came into my mind and, and then left. And so I'll pray that it doesn't leave me again. But uh, people are always asking, what what do you think the real reason was that he resigned? I mean, he said prayer, discernment, you know, all that sort of thing. But he must have had reasons beyond the, you know, I'm not strong enough to do this job anymore. Was he being blackmailed? Was his resignation valid? Uh, you know, is he was he still really the pope? And, you know, and Francis isn't and all that. What's the real motives here? The fact is, and you know this, too, uh, from studying Ignatian spirituality and, and other forms of spirituality that do the same thing, which is that if you reach that stage of indifference in your in your discernment process, you can get a powerful impression from the Lord of what you need to do without the Lord for all that telling you why, which only adds to his humility and his sanctity in the obedience. You, I mean, to be the only pope in 600 years to resign, you don't think that didn't cross his mind? <laughs> mm -hmm. You don't think he didn't say to himself, oh, my God, you know, to doubt himself, am I just Am I just running away? Is this not an act of cowardice? Am I not violating my vocation? Lord, tell me what to do. So it's like Abraham being told, get up, go, but and you're going to go over there. But without really being told, well, why am I going over there? How am I going to get there? But he got this message from the Lord. You do this. So my, my gut feeling is that uh, Pope Benedict, in the process of discernment, got the powerful message from the Lord that it was time for him to resign. And my gut says that he was never really told why, that he just did it out of obedience to Christ, to the Father. Uh, and I think that only adds, like I said, to, it, to his sanctity, to the mystery. Um, and it kind of chokes you up when you think about it. That, that his decision, and this is often very much, I think, overlooked, that his decision entailed cruciform suffering on his part, that it actually was not easy for him to resign. I, I read a thing on AP today that said, the man, the reluctant pope who never wanted to be pope and who eventually resigned because he never really wanted to be pope anyway, and he felt trapped. Well, he, I hope nobody ever wants to be pope. Mm -hmm. If you want to be pope, you shouldn't be pope. Right. You know, if you crave papacy, then you shouldn't be the pope. Uh, and so I, I think that he engaged, he probably endured a lot of cruciform suffering out of obedience to the Lord's telling him that he needed to resign. But there's a grace in that. There's an unseen grace that pours out yes. itself onto not only the, it, it pours it out to the church, but it also pours it out to the world. Yeah. And whatever the father is doing in this world that we have right now, you know, yeah. I have to believe that just yeah. allowing us, allowing us, you and me and everybody that's listened, the whole church to have the experience of a Joseph Ratzinger in our lives and in, oh, our, yes. in, our, in our times um, and to connect us once again, I keep going back to it. I think he, he was always pointing 
to something else, wasn't he? I mean, he never yes. pointed to himself. It, and when when I mean by, you know, the, not only the immediate theologians that were in his circle, but to like the resource mon, that yeah. legacy of going back and looking at the original sources to be able to listen to the voices that came a long ago, but yet still say the same thing. You know, yes. are are we listening? Are we listening? And that's going to be, you know, that your students, what you write, Larry, what you do is going to be so important in the days, weeks, years to come. Well, I, I hope that's true. I mean, in my own discernment, I, uh, I resisted for many years the call of my former students to start a blog, for example. I, thought, I don't mm -hmm. like blogs. I don't read them myself. Uh, I'm a Luddite technologically. Uh, I think there are way too many... So. Uh, I, I'm way, yeah, I am. And I, I think there are way too many blogs. And when everybody was saying blog, 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 I said, no, 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 no. And then uh, one day I wrote something on Facebook that was a little too long. And somebody said, hey, chap, start a blog. So, well, you know, I was getting a little bored on the farm. So I thought, okay, I'll start a blog. And it went viral. I was like, boom. So then I, yeah, I've had to do some discerning. Uh, and uh, my lovely wife, Carrie, is you know, always ever behind me, uh, helping. And I, I never thought in a million years that I would now, now I've got a new podcast out. It's on Spotify and Apple Gaudi Mitzvah's 22 podcast. It's got a few things on it already. Of course, my YouTube channel, my blogs, writing for Catholic. I'm heading off to Rome to do reporting on the funeral and stuff. Yeah. And, and I didn't want to do any of that. <laughs> Seriously. I'm an old Welcome curmudgeon to the digital sea. And that's, yeah, well, that's why when you said that, and so don't be afraid to launch in the digital sea, I have to admit that I had a sort of intellectualist ivory tower sort of condescension towards the digital world that, you know, Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message and uh, the digital world is in some ways warping our brains in, in negative ways. Um, but it's unavoidable. And so we have to be unafraid to risk those distortions, that warping for the sake of our brothers and sisters out there who need. Otherwise, we're just giving up the entire digital sphere to to the barbarians. And since the digital sphere is now everything, that means everything is going to be dominated by the barbarians. Well, so, Marshall, yes. yeah, Marshall McLuhan might have said that, but I don't necessarily think it's true. I think would, because we've had a Benedict, I think he would say it's not about the means. It's not about the medium. It's about the message. And that yeah. ultimately you use all these different things that they're all going to change, you know, whether it's books and now it's this or it's that or it's well, but see, that's the thing about Benedict. I mean, he was writing. It, it, as Cardinal Ratzinger, he was in the in the studio. Yeah. And, but then when he got the opportunity, he took that time as the audience and not unlike what John Paul did. But he and I'd have to say, in some ways, he was I, I, there might be people that will argue with me, but I think he was better at it because he knew how to slice it up and then to make it relevant for the audience yeah. that he was talking about. And he was setting of the legacy. Go back look at the scriptures, look at the, it's that school of prayer that he had when he broke up how to pray when he, when he, yeah. I mean, he was speaking to the, the doctor in Vietnam or the woman, uh, the housewife in our apartment in New York. He was, he was trying in that catechetical 
style. Yeah. He brought it all down from the mountaintop and he was handing it on to people. Yeah. And what he, what he did was he made it incarnational and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, personal in the sense of making it personal and, and local and, uh, you know, conversational computers. So, yeah, I get your point, you know, that uh, Benedict was not afraid to enter into that world. And yeah. I think he saw that we needed to. Yeah. I think he saw we needed to. And there you, you've met them. There was all these young men and women who I I don't understand it completely myself now, even though I've been swimming in the sea for a while. And they it's easier for them to pick it up. But there's no reason why they can't get to know Joseph Ratzinger. I mean, and like you said, it yes. is so easy just to be able to access his works, it, it, whether you're uh, picking them up through the the great Ignatius Press, who has published just about everything that he has said or done, um, whether in book form, uh, but also just going to Vatican.va and pulling uh, all the different things in, in to listen to him. If you have the opportunity, there are, the videos are out there, and yeah, just don't don't stop. Just begin, don't you think? I agree. Just dive in. People often write to me and say, okay, uh, I want to learn about this theologian, that theologian, give me a book or whatever. I, I, I said, no, it, it, don't worry about whether or not this is the entry book or just pick up anything and start reading it. And, and I think you're going to be richly rewarded for it. One of my actual favorite books of his, something I read when I was in my twenties mm-hmm. and it was very influential in me. Of course, I read Introduction to Christianity, which was his first like great mm-hmm. work, which is I would recommend to anybody. But it's a little tiny book called Daughter Zion, and it's about Mary. Mm-hmm. And it's about her role in salvation history. And I, when I say a small book, I mean it's no more than a hundred pages, might even be less. And what it is, it's his theological meditation on the dogma of the Immaculate Conception and the dogma of the assumption of Mary body and soul into heaven. All right, so on the two great Marian dogmas of the modern world, and I think he wrote on that precisely because they are ecumenical bones of contention, not just with our brothers and sisters in the Protestant world, but also even among Eastern Orthodox who also believed in Mary's sinlessness, but they wouldn't call it the immaculate conception or dogmatize it, likewise with regard to the assumption. But he wrote this beautiful little meditation that makes sense of all of it. Uh, and I remember how absolutely moved I was by it and, and thinking, well, why, why doesn't everybody now believe these things? <laughs> because all you got to, anytime somebody would give me a hard time about one of these dogmas that you need to read Ratzinger go and they would, and they'd say, Oh, wow. Yeah. I never thought of it that way before. And that wasn't that Ratzinger's great gift. Pope Benedict's mm-hmm. great gift is that when you get done reading him, you say to yourself, I never thought of it that way before. What a right. brilliant insight. What a brilliant insight that is. And with him, it just flowed out of him like it was, you know, you know, something he read in the morning paper. Oh, by the way, here's this idea. Like, oh, geez. Yeah, what a great. It, yeah, it was all the aha moments. You know, you knew yeah. that, but you didn't know you knew that. But you knew exactly. that. And that's, that's right. because it's incarnational. I mean, that's what right. he does is he uh, he it's not him but it's Christ revealing through him himself to us. Is that too lofty you know, it, way of describing No, it? it's perfect because what Ratzinger and, or Pope Benedict had the gift of doing was to take the old 
uh, truths of the faith that we that we all have heard and stories of the gospel we've heard over and over and over again, and they, they just wash over us like you know water off a duck's back. But he has a way of putting them where you get to see them again for the first time, and you if they're fresh again, they're alive again. And once again, I mean, Pope uh, Benedict was not a Jesuit, but this is very Ignatian to put imaginative flesh on, you know, on those bones to really make the gospel narrative come alive. And that, that was his great gift, his great legacy, making that which was, which is old new again through fresh eyes. Absolutely. Well, I wish we could have more time, but you got to pack. You're on your way. I'm on my way to Rome. Yeah. I'm very excited. I'm Rome is my favorite city in the world. If I could live there, I would. So I'm, I'm, happy now to have the excuse to go there. <laughs> mm, well, and yeah. uh, I take our prayers with you. Won't you? I will. I always have, I always take a prayer list and I, I, I pray in two places over the tomb of St. Peter and over the tomb of John Paul. And now I will pray over. I, I read that John, that Pope Benedict is probably going to be buried in the same in the old tomb that John Paul was in. So if you went downstairs underneath, you know, in the grotto where the popes are buried, where John Paul's uh, uh, coffin was, grave was, is now where Benedict is going to be since they moved John Paul upstairs into the main church. That's next to Paul the sixth, isn't it? It's yeah, that's right. Real, yeah. Yeah. It yeah, should be like yeah. right next door. Yeah. You go past Paul the sixth and then boom, there there'll be that, you know, down it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful little, uh, tomb area there the Very hall of saints hall of yeah. saints holy right. holy holy well, dr th- larry chap thank you so much any final thoughts any no any- i would just encourage everybody to pray for the repose of the soul of our beloved papa benedict uh even if we are convinced that he might be a saint that he you know that he's in heaven uh i and at the very least ask for his intercession because i think now we have a powerful intercessor and he's praying for a healing in this church you watch. There's going to be, so. there's healing going to happen. All right, Dr. Larry right. Chap, thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Chris. You've been listening to a special edition of In Conversation with Dr. Larry Chap discussing the life and legacy of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. You can also watch the video of our conversation on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com.